start with prayer today for a sermon today and that God would reveal himself to us in power as we look at his word. Father, you love us and you know us. Lord, and these two foundational things form the core of our identity, that we are loved and that we are known by you. And we're so thankful for that, God. We can't return anything to you by way of payment, but all we can do is out of a uh, the overflow of our praise and thanksgiving, return worship to you. Just confess our love for you as well. And we ask your blessing. Help me, Lord, to present clearly, Lord, and to glorify the name of Jesus. In his name I pray, amen. So today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5. So you can open your Bibles if you have them and go there. And go through the second half of that chapter, verses 11 through 21. Um, and when the elders asked me to speak about what I did essentially at youth camp on identity, I thought that would be a good idea. So I've got a two-part series here today, part one, uh, Christian identity. I did this at youth camp, and so some of the youth are here even talking to me now, and that's great. I see you right there, and I'm happy for them to be here. Uh, I've modified a little bit for us adults, but the core of the message is the same. I want to present to you a couple of important key things. First is that we must receive our identity as Christians. God must give it to us. We cannot achieve it. That's the first thing. And I will re- I'll review these. They'll be up on the screen. So, But I want to reiterate that, that we must receive our identity. It is not something for us to achieve. And secondly, that this is absolutely vital in our culture today. I mean, if you interact in the workplace, everything about who we are as believers is being challenged. And so for the kids, I wanted to present something that they could make a reasonable defense of their faith and so that they might grow in their faith as well. And I think that's good for us to have the same goal in these series that I present to you. Now, lest you think this is something outside of us, maybe you do, maybe you don't, I have a... Uh, Pretty funny picture here. Funny, shocking, whatever you call it. So Carrie sent this to me uh, last week. Uh, I think it was Thursday or something when I was hacking up a lung in bed and I actually like started laughing. And I, I, I sent him a text right away. I'm like, is this real? He's like, yeah, it's real. You can Google it. And then I sent it to my wife and she's like, is this real? And I'm like, yeah, you, you can Google it. And so we've kind of chuckled about it. And I was shocked at first, but then the Lord brought this message right to mind. And I was like, man, I have to share this with the body. This, this is not surprising. Yeah, we work with Hindus in our ministry to ISI students, UTD. But this is the way that we end up when we depart from our identity in God. We end up worshiping plants and asking them for forgiveness. I mean, it is absolutely unreasonable. This actually happened. This was a seminary that was founded in the 1830s. And now they pray to plants. I tell you why, because they've forgotten who they are in Christ Jesus. So it's a good reminder for us to stay firm to the core of who we are. So, yeah, Google that. I'm sure some of you will. You type in Union Seminary, the first thing that will come up is this. (laughs) We are not going to confess the plants today. I want to answer two of the four major questions that everyone thinks about when they think about identity. That is, who am I and what am I like today? Uh, next week, we're going to talk about uh, what do I need and where am I going? And I think those four questions form the core of our identity. I want to start, though, with what it's not. And we will get to Second Corinthians here in a second. But 
what it's not. Because our culture out there is telling us what it is. Your identity is formed whether you like it or not. A fish that's in water doesn't know what water is. A person in culture is formed. They, they have an idea of who they are, their sense of worth and self, whether or not they like it. The culture does that to us. And these are things that our culture is telling us right now. So popular psychologists say, I am who I experience myself to be. David Benner is an author and a book of The Gift of Being Yourself defines identity as who we experience ourselves to be, the I each of us carries within. And again, these are, I'm not saying these are right. <laughs> that is not right. But these are what our popular culture is telling us. Uh, another man with a little more Eastern take, uh, Sharam Heshmat, a psychologist and author and university professor, says, Identity relates to our basic values that dictate the choices we make. Our career, our relationships. In other words, what we do and choose is who we are. The choices I make. Uh, someone you might be more familiar with, Ellen DeGeneres, famous TV star, said this, and I quote, Accept who you are, unless you're a serial killer. We're all supposed to be different. I want so badly to encourage everyone to say, who am I and how do I want to live my life? That's almost incoherent because there's no standard there, right? It's, it's self-contradictory. But that's what our culture is saying. We have to be unique. We have to be whoever I want. And finally, Lil Nas X. I'm probably saying that wrong. This is from a country rapper. Yes, such a genre exists. Growing in popularity, my friends. Uh, I'm not joking. But in a famous song, very popular right now, called Old Town Road. Yes, Maya was mouthing it. He says this. These are the words of his chorus. Can't nobody tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. Can't nobody tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. And it, and it goes on like that. I mean, <laughs> very simple. He's got a message, and he's not afraid to share it, right? So clearly, they, these are a snapshot of our culture. And it's true. This is what most of us in the U.S., Americans believe, how we are defined. But I got to tell you, and, and you can see these, they're wrong, but maybe you don't know why exactly, and I hope to help you from Scripture, from God's Word itself, but these are all kind of like a bad Dollar Tree toy, okay? <laughs> now, this is, this is a real picture, and my wife and I found funny ones, but no matter how you label it, it's not a dog, right? It's, I don't know what that is. Kind of ostrich, right? But Here's the point. You can try to make it look like whatever you want, but when hard times come, dollar, those Dollar Tree toys, man, they break in 30 seconds at home. And then we're stepping on them, and I'm angry that I even let my son buy it for a dollar. Might as well buy a $30 one and get your money's worth. Anyway, the point is, these things fall apart. Those worldview, the way worldview, whatever, identity, formation, these things fall apart because they're not true. And then where do you turn? As believers, we turn to the Lord, don't we? So what it is, a couple of things before we dive into 2 Corinthians. I think overarching themes in the Bible. In other words, what I'm saying to you is when you read the Bible, these are things that you should think about. God is saying identity. Because the word identity itself is not used super often in the Scripture. Maybe one or two times to talk about this kind of thing that we're talking about. My sense of self and my sense of worth. Uh, so we have image of God, adoption, calling, and gifts, known by God, loved by God. Those two things we're going to talk about specifically today. Another interesting one, the language of discipleship. Jesus has a lot to say about who his followers are 
at their core, doesn't he? So the language of discipleship is another one that the Bible uses to talk to us about who we are in the Lord. A couple of specific terms as well. Uh, We have control. I think that's an interesting one. We're going to see that in 2 Corinthians 5 itself, control. In Christ is probably the defining terminology there in all of the Bible, in the New Testament itself. In Christ, or in God, with him, and hope. So again, that is what it is biblically. Um, We're talking about a sense of worth and a sense of self, and this is how the Bible talks about those things. Before we dive in, the last thing I want to say is it's not a matter of figuring out who we are. See, that's what all these other worldviews had in common. A Western approach to this, American approach, is wrong because it says I go inside to find the good, and I tell myself whether I'm achieving it or not. I can be whatever I want, and I'm the only one who tells me whether I'm making it or not. And that's not right. We don't figure out who we are, but we rest in the truth. We rest in the truth of God. And there's great peace when we agree with God on the facts that he tells us about ourselves. And that is a blessing to us. And so I'm the same way. I wonder from my identity in Christ. Tim Keller says that none of us are living out the Christian identity perfectly. Because if we were, we'd be God himself. Because only he loves himself supremely. And we aren't there. And so we are those who are on the path to loving Christ. To living out that identity day by day. All right, so let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'd like to read verses 11 through 13 for our first chunk here. 11 through 13, this is the ESV. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is, and here's one of the key phrases I want to pick on, is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you a cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And so identity is given by God. Why? Because he knows us best. He knows us best. And this may seem like an interesting passage. Maybe you're like, why Second Corinthians 5 for identity? tell you why because of what paul is doing in this very book he's defending his way of life to the corinthian opposition whatever they are whoever they are they're challenging him they're saying he's not really who he says he is among other things and so paul is picking up that and saying it's not true i know the lord and he knows me more importantly his sense of self paul's sense of self and ours too is picked up because God knows him and knows him intimately, knows his motives, right, in this passage. And more than that, knows everything about him. And Paul had some pretty bad things in the closet, honestly. But he says, what I am is known to God. And what you are is known to God. And what I am is known to God. I think when we unpack this, we obviously have to go to Genesis. We have to go there because there are some foundational things that Paul knows, that the Corinthians know, that we have to be reminded of to remember for ourselves because God knows us. How does he know us? Why does he know us? What are the things he knows about us? Well, first, we're created as reflectors. And you can stay in 2 Corinthians 5. I'm just giving you about seven quick things from Genesis 
chapters 1 to 3. We're created as reflectors. See, creation is key. Psalm 139, picking up on this, says that God knew you when? In the womb. It says God's plan of salvation was before the foundation of the world. So actually, even before creation, God knows each one of us before the world was even made. But then when he makes it, he says that we're created in the image of God. The cool thing about that is, um, not only that we're creatures, so we are not the creator. He's the one who made us. He knows what we're like. But also that we're mirrors. And I have a funny, kind of cool illustration that I think helps us pick up on this. Because we reflect. What does a mirror do? It doesn't have an image of its own. Right? It reflects what is in front of it. So my son and I were driving. Some of you probably heard this. We're driving on the access road on 75 North. I still remember we're at Arapahoe and the access road. And there's a car in front of me, and I am, my sanctification goes out the window when I'm driving in 75. Sad to say. But, so, has, I, I'm sitting there at a red light, it turned to green, I wait like three seconds, and the car's not moving, so I go, holy crap, go, go, go! Okay? My son's sitting here in the back, he hears this, so we're going, and not three seconds later, there's another car in front of me that's going fine, but he yells the same thing. Holy crap, go, go, go. I'm like, oh my goodness, Lord help me. (laughs) I'm not condoning my language there. It was wrong. And my attitude, wrong. But the point is that he reflected me because he looks up to me. He's, He's a reflector of his father. And we too are reflectors at our best of our heavenly father. Our worst of what we put in front of us and reflect that. I think that's just to pick up on that a little bit more and ask you, what do you shout go, go, go for in your life? What are the things which other people would see reflected in you by your actions, by your time? What what do you reflect? It's a good way to start maybe thinking about who you are in Christ. What do you reflect? See, Romans 1 says negatively, going back to that Union Seminary picture, right, We sin, and so we reject God's way, his identity has for us, right? And we descend into idolatry. So at some point, we end up worshiping plants at something that calls itself a Christian seminary. Not surprising, because God tells us that's what happens when we descend away from him into sin. Worship is just the honoring of that which we find is ultimate. It's the experience of becoming like the thing we desire or look at or behold. And so it's not no wonder that whatever we look at, spend our time doing, we reflect that thing. Positively, this is just worship of God. And he knows this about us. That's key. Do you see what I'm saying here? He knows that we are like this. That's why he constantly calls us to look at him. So he constantly calls us to behold the face of Jesus Christ. Because we'll reflect what we desire and look at and behold. A couple other things that I see from Genesis chapter 1 and th- one through 3 is that we have authority and purpose. That's really important. Our, our world, a lot of people out there are looking for authority. They want power. God's given it to us in limited means and capacities, but he has given it to us. And they're also looking for purpose. It's one of the things I hear a lot. Is what, is, what do I want to do in my life? What is my purpose? And God has given that to us. We have value. Value. You know, I looked long and hard. I dug and dug in the doula household. And I came up with 
this picture of Eric Dula drawing his family at four years old. I think that lumpy one on the right-hand side, the gumdrop shade, that must be Carrie. Um, this is mom over there. And this is Selah drawing a flower at two years old. I mean, you can kind of see it. Now, here's the point. When my kids bring these silly pictures to me, and all of you have had this happen, haven't you? I'm sure at some point in your life, your kid has brought you something, and you're like, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, that's really great. Put it on the fridge. It stays there for a year. You don't want to take it down for fear of offending them. But you love them. Are you going to reject them? They have value because they're your child. And you love them. And God is the same way with us. We bring our messed up things to him and he says, I love you, man. I love you. Just like a child bringing those pictures. Those were fake, by the way. That's not Eric Dula's drawing. I just want to tell you that. But I think it's a good illustration of how God values us. I think important for our culture is that our actions have meaning. We don't just get to do whatever. In fact, today my son up there had a little bit of discipline because his actions have consequence and meaning in our lives too. And we need to be reminded of this. We need relationships. We need other people. We have a sin nature and we'll die. No one has escaped that. And God makes a way back from death. I think that's clear in Genesis 3 and the promise there and 15 and following. Also in Romans 5, it's clear. These things. These are core foundational realities of who we are. Who you are, who I am, who everyone in this world that was ever born is. Can't get away from it. Those things are true. So God knows us, and he knows these things about us. And our identity is found in him giving us basically advice knowing these things, right? He's going to say to you, repent of your sin. Why? You're a sinner. Come to me, or else destruction is coming. Why? Because you'll reflect and turn out what you worship. Turn out like what you worship. If you spend all your time... In entertainment, you're going to end up like that. That's all you're going to care about. So he knows us best. And we can't define ourselves. That's the problem. On the flip side, God really knows us well. The Bible has a lot to say about our pride clouding our view of ourselves. Doesn't it? Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things, desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? In other words, who knows what our hearts are like? He answers and says, but I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. We don't know our own emotions. We can be happy one day and sad the next. We can be happy one second and sad the next. We don't know sometimes why we're that way. I'm that way. We've all found ourselves that way, not understanding even why we feel the way we do. Our desires change. My desires change. Man, I used to love American food. Now I really don't like it. Why? I don't know. Over time, I guess I've gotten used to biryani. I I don't have the answer for that. But our desires change. God is not changing. He stays the same. In fact, he knows why I like biryani now and I didn't earlier. He knows why you are sad today if you are and why you weren't yesterday. He knows those things about you. It says he searches your heart. And so we aren't inherently wise, smart, or powerful. I mean, if we can't even know our own hearts, how do we have any business defining ourselves? I mean, I think a couple of practical things here is, can you name every person on your street or your apartment building 
I know I can't. I can't even tell you when people are on my street. I know there's probably less than 100 to Denon Road, but what will happen in your house or apartment tonight at 5 o'clock? Maybe some of you have some routine. Maybe you're going to be sleeping. I don't know. But God knows right now. That kind of power and knowledge is someone that you want to define you. To be the one who tells you what is right and wrong, isn't it? That's the kind of God that you want on your side, telling you this way and not that. This is that kind of God. And so when Paul is writing to these Corinthians, defending his ministry, he says, what we are is known to God and that's a good thing. Because he knows us intimately. I think a couple of application areas for us that really come out of resting in this truth that our identity is given because God knows us. Not because we know him well, but he knows us well. Is first, parenting. There's a lot of shame involved. I even felt a little bit today when my son is acting up up there. But knowing that God knows all that's going to happen, knows my failure as a parent, knows yours as a grandparent, there's a lot of peace in that, isn't there? Knowing that God knows our children better than we do and is the best father ever, there's a lot of peace resting in that knowledge of what God knows and what God can do about that knowledge versus us. In fact, that takes it out of our court and puts it in his. I'm not saying that I want you to become a laissez-faire parent. Yeah, do whatever you want. No, we don't want to fall there. But what I am saying is there's a lot of peace and a lot of beauty in resting in God, giving our children and ourselves our identity, not striving for it. So we don't have to shower compliments on our kids. Yeah, that was awesome, amazing, and he can't even like write God correctly, right? No, they're not geniuses. They're just like us. They're learning. They're fallen. They're sinners. But so are we. So I think it can really change the dynamic in parenting, and we can grow in that, and in grandparenting. That grandkid, I see John Meyer over there, <laughs> he's just a little sinner too, or she is. It can really, again, make us rest in peace. Second, I think it makes us courageous to share our lives in the gospel. Again, this picks up on shame. Because if we're going out there and we're afraid and we're ashamed to even share what Jesus has done for us, because we wonder what's going to happen and it might affect our self-esteem, etc., That's the wrong way to go. I think resting in the fact that God knows us intimately will help us be courageous to share the gospel. It'll give us boldness. Because God knows that person. And he knows us. He knows our fears. He's got it. He's got it. And I think, thirdly, playing on that same theme, that church life on Sunday, and this is from the guys on Wednesday, can really be affected when we rest in the fact that God defines who we are. So even if I disagree with someone, I can come here and fellowship because... I know God knows me and knows my motives. I don't have to be ashamed of sharing things, of even intimate things and worshiping and rejoicing and getting up here and sharing what God is doing in my life because God knows it. And he's the one to whom I have to do. He's the one who says what I'm like, not other people. And I would hope that most of us here would react well anyway. But that's not the point. The point is that God knows it already. As we're going to see... That knowledge isn't just knowledge that's out there. It's an intimate knowledge that produces love from him. And that's my second point. I think oftentimes I find myself looking for love in all the wrong places. Where are we looking for love at in our lives? Are we going to the wrong well? I know Thomas preached about that, but there's one who loves us, has always loved us, and has demonstrated that love. 
Our identity has to be given by God because he loves us. There's actually an old country song, but I don't really like country, but it goes something like looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in all the wrong faces, etc. Some of you know it, but uh, that's true. John, John knows it. Our identity is given because God loves us. He loves us. I, I think this is probably the one thing we have to wrestle with the most in our lives. If you'll turn to Second Corinthians 5 and read, we're going to read verses 14, 15, and 21. 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might not longer live for themselves might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then skipping down to verse 21, because I think it forms a bookend here. I think these are the main points of what he's saying. Is that for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There are some heavy terms in there I want to dwell on in a minute, but I just want to say that God knows everything about you. And everything about me. And he says, I still love you. That is, a, that is a game changer. You know, I might hope that my wife loves me our entire marriage. And, and I pray that's true. But if I put my identity in that marriage and something happens, what happens to me? I fall apart. And the same thing for her. If she puts all of her hope in my love for her, that just is going to end badly. Kids, brothers. I mean, I love my brother a lot, but this is totally different. This kind of love is one that never ends. This is the kind of love that loves a person like this. You know, we we might think of Hitler or Stalin or Kim Jong-un maybe as the worst dudes to have ever lived, but... There's another guy, and I preached on this on Christmas Eve a couple of years ago, and it just changed my world. Just rocked it. It said, basically, this guy hunted down and murdered everyone he could find that spoke for God. Everyone. And killed him. He did witchcraft. He went to fortune tellers to try and find out the future. He slept with everyone he could, had sex with them, both male and female, probably because of the time and the culture at that time. He built idols, as many as he could, prayed to them as much as he could, and he put them in the middle of the place where people worshipped God. He didn't just kill an unborn baby like we do in America. He did an abortion. He killed his born son and sacrificed it to a demon to get favor. Anyone know who this is in the Bible? Manasseh. He's included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He repented, and God forgave him. Talk about our theme this morning. And God loved him even when he was doing those things. That is amazing to me. And it's right there in scripture for all time for us to read and to look at not him, but the God whom he served when he repented. The God who we have. That is a God that I want to follow. Our sense of worth is not found in what we do. Otherwise, he's without hope, and so are we, Manasseh. It's not found in anything we're going to do tomorrow or that we've done in the past. It is found in the love of God for us. It is being loved by God. 
known and loved. Christ's love does what in verse 14? It controls us. It's the controlling factor in your life and in mine. I want to pick up on a couple of terms here. If I was writing the Bible, thank goodness I'm not. I have no claim to that. The Holy Spirit worked through Paul here. But it says he made us the what? The righteousness of God. Holy cow. That is almost scandalous. Knowing my heart, knowing your heart, how can he say that? <laughs> we are righteousness. And only in Christ. He sees us, the substitutionary atonement, right? He sees us as he sees his son. One more proof of that? Go to John seventeen thirteen. It says, so that the world may know that you sent me, this is Jesus speaking, and loved them, how? Even as you loved me. That is amazing. The love between the Father and the Son was before the world began. It's infinite. It's infinite. Unbreakable. That is the kind of love that God has for you and I. It's amazing. It's the greatest love of all. And we have to rest in that. People around us won't always love us, but God will. And that's a beautiful thing. Now, I heard someone talking about a Lewis conference here, so I'm actually pulling from his work. Um, and he wrote in The Four Loves, he gave us these categories. I'm sure you've heard them before, but I want to point them out again and then take you to kind of the conclusion of those. It's not qualities. This is before that. but So first, there's eros, the romantic love, like a husband and wife for a lover. These were just kind of like what we see a lot in our culture. This is really what our culture talks about, this kind of love. We have philos, which is friendship, two people, brothers, common goal. We have storge, like an affection for sandals. I love sandals. I like to wear them. I, I don't like shoes. I love sandals, that kind of love. Agape, though, and this is where you're at. You, you know this. This is where we're at. Divine love, characterized by sacrifice and pursuit of another's good. And that is the kind of love God has for us. What does that look like? Well, first, it's a love for his enemies. Romans 5, 6, and 8. The degree to which the person loved does not deserve to be loved defines agape. And it's infinite. God died for his enemies. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, died for his enemies. We read today, we heard today that he forgave the people who crucified him to the cross. Man, I was thinking, how great is that love? How great is that love? Beyond human capacity. It's divine. Second, the greatness of the price paid. How much did God pay to show his love? The life of the Son. Third, the level of desire that God has for the good... Oh, sorry, that's four. Eternal, uh, yes, the greatness of the good done for the person. How, what did Christ's death accomplish for us? Restoration with the Father, eternal life forever, fellowship with one another in a new kingdom and a new earth, go on and on, peace with one another, ability to forgive others. You could go on and on. So God did a lot of good in the cross. His love does a lot of good for us. And finally, the level of desire that God has for the one who is loved. He's a wonderful father. <laughs> this was even shared today, Luke 15, in that song we sang, right? Or we listened to, sorry. 
God goes outside the house to both of the brothers. One has ran away and done his own thing. The other's angry and bitter and inside the house, but he leaves the house actually at the end when the party's going on. That'd be me, I have to confess. That would be me. I'm, I'm very like that. But God loves both those people. And he goes outside the house. So he has great desire for the lost. He has great desire for the lost. These are the things that characterize God's love for us. John Piper says it this way. God's love paid the highest price for the life of the son for undeserving enemies to give the greatest happiness. Now, I have a phrase that I'd like you to focus on here first. It's a little hard when you hear it at first, but it's really good. It's, it goes like this. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Say it again. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. What's the connection? Who is praiseworthy? God is praiseworthy. His love is worthy of our worship. He is the greatest being ever. The ultimate one. Supreme over all things who with a word spoke the world into being. Right? Now that person says to you and I, I love you. You know, I love baseball. I love the Cubs. Sadly, they got swept by the Cardinals this weekend and they're probably not even going to make the playoffs. Sad story. But let's say I'm out playing baseball and I got a couple of people watching me in the stands. One, my son. Two, Justin over here. And three, Chris Bryant. Who's Chris Bryant? Amazing baseball player, one rookie of the year. He, he hits really well. Okay, So I hit, I'm out there and I, I hit it over the fence. I haven't ever done that in real baseball myself, but softball. Anyway, so I hit a, I hit a good hit, goes over the fence, and my son says to me, Daddy, that was awesome. You're, you're the best baseball player ever. I'm like, hey, thanks, son. Thinking I'm cool here. I've done something great. Then Justin tells me, man, dude, that was awesome. That was a good hit. I'm feeling a little better. You know, he's a pretty athletic guy. You know, he's in the military. I'm feeling good about myself. A little better, right? What are those compared to Chris Bryant, a professional baseball player? If he came to me and said to me, dude, that was one of the best hits I've ever seen. First of all, I'm not going to believe him probably. But if he was serious, how much would that mean to me? More than my son? Of course. More than Justin? Oh, yeah. That's the point. When, when our husband or wife or friend tells us they love us, that's cool. <laughs> and, and they should, and it's good. But that is minuscule in comparison to the God that we know through the revelation of the Holy Scriptures telling us that he loves us. The praise of the praiseworthy is beyond all rewards. So when God says to us that he loves us, that is how we get our identity. We are loved by God and we are known by God. I think an application uh, from this idea here is that we can cultivate our relationship with this God who loves us. And when we do that, our lives will start to change because we'll see his love in greater picture for us. What will happen is like what youth, the youth group kids do. I love it. I love watching them. They, they come and they're kind of like hesitant. I don't know. Sarah's not in here, so I'll pick on her. She's in high school. I don't think so. When she first came, Sarah Johnson, she was very hesitant. In fact, we almost had to drag her there. Okay, But over time, she began to like it more. She got to know us. She got to know people. So she started coming every week. 
saying no to other things with her family or friends because she liked it. And then she started bringing her friend Genesis recently. And I've seen many kids do that same thing in our youth group. And God has blessed it for his own purposes. But my point is, when they start to love going to youth group, what happens? Well, they make that a priority in their lives. And I'm saying in a similar way, much greater, when we start to look at the God of the Bible who says he loves us regularly, that new affection will push out other things. We can't just say no to these other things in our life and not replace that love with something else. We have to look at Christ to push the other things, sinful things out of our lives. And even good things sometimes. Finally, and briefly, we'll go into this more next week when I answer the other two questions. What do I need and where am I going? But our identity is also given by God because he's the one who can change us forever. Verses 16 through 20 in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so this terminology, being in Christ, changes who we are. That's the picture. A new creation. We were this way, but now we're this way. We'll go into that a lot next week, but that is the point. We have a new identity. We have a new identity. We are known to God, we are loved by God, and we are changed by God. He controls our experiences and molds us. Earlier in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul is making the same defense, and he's trying to tell them why they're doing what they're doing. Paul's ministry and his people. And he says, all these things have happened to us. You opposing us, us almost dying, So that what? We might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And he changes us. He changes our perspective on our experiences. So if you've had terrible experiences in life, if you're having them now even, I don't know what your plot in life is like. But if you are, know that God is using those in your changed identity to make you love him and to view them from a godly perspective, to mold you into a person that he wants to use for his glory. And we serve a risen Savior. We won't stay sinners who are going to die. We're going to be glorified in bodies in heaven. No death, no sin with each other. We won't fight. We won't curse. We won't do anything. We won't be bitter. We'll enjoy each other forever. And that's our future. That's what's changed about us. Our eternal destiny has changed. Our current circumstances might not have, but our perspective on them certainly can and should change. That's the kind of God we have. So just a question for you in parting. This is what I asked the kids. I said, are you being a victim of your circumstances or are you victorious in Christ? I think that's the question we all need to ask ourselves about identity. Are we, are we a victim or victorious? Of course we're not a victim, right? Though we act like it. We are victorious. In fact, not just victorious. We're more than conquerors because we have inheritance as adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that more next week. But we are more than 
conquerors. We are more than victorious. And this is an illustration that I kind of want to end on today, given by Mr. Watson at our Wednesday breakfast. He said, really, it's as if, and I'm embellishing here a little bit, but imagine you went to a raffle or a giveaway. It was really cool. You got invited. You were selected. Ten of ten people got selected from here. And you were going to this raffle, and they were giving away Rembrandt paintings. Probably never would happen, but hey, right? And let's say you got number ten. You got the least known one, and you still got a Rembrandt, though. So what is your reaction going to be? You know, the least famous one recently sold in 2009 for like $20 million or something like that. Are you going to be angry that this other guy over here in our church got the number one one worth $100 million? I hope not. Maybe, <laughs> but I hope not. No, I think you're going to rejoice because of what you got. In the same similar way for us, we're all Rembrandts in God's eyes. Seriously, we don't have to play the victim. Each one of us is made by an amazing artist. Each one of us is like that. He knows us intimately. He desires a relationship with you and with me. And he's shown it and proved it because he loves us and he died for us. We don't have to be a victim. We can root our identity. We can rest in the peace that God gives us because we know he loves us and he's changed us forever. That's the first part of these messages. And I I pray that each one of us, myself, would rest in this this week. And our brother who's going to the Middle East and our kids who are going to the middle school, the message is the same to each one. Rest in this. God knows you and he loves you. That's the kind of God I want to worship. Let's pray and ask him to help us do that this week. Heavenly Father, you're so good to us. You're so good in that you know us so well. You know what's best for us. You created us exactly the way you wanted us. We're all a Rembrandt in your eyes. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you have showered us with your love. You've proved it at the cross. You've given us your Holy Spirit. There's nothing we have for life and godliness that we don't need because you love us. Help us to rest in that this week at our jobs and our families. As parents and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, Lord. Be more to us this week than you have been in the past. Lord, help us to press into your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.